praise in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. The following is a sermon recently preached at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this message. You see from our bulletin, our text that we'll be considering this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Now in this text, we see there's a contrast being given between the righteous, between those who have the Spirit, and those who are antichrist, those who deny Christ, those who deny the triune Lord. And we'll see that our author of this epistle, he has many aims and objectives, but throughout the book, the tone of this epistle, he exhorts his readers, he frequently and freely, through this exhortation, intermixes Christian teaching. And he tells them that he has a multi-layered purpose for this writing. He wants them to have fellowship. You see this in the first chapter. He wants their joy to be filled, to be fulfilled. He, he's writing to them because he wants them to be sanctified. He wants them to cease sinning. And he also wants them to know that they have eternal life. He wants them to believe in the name of Christ. All of this is in the context of our message, which is faithfulness to Christ. This is how we put off sin. This is how we enjoy fellowship with one another. And this is how we know that we have eternal life. So, this morning, our text from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard, the Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've spoken to us this morning. We thank you that you're gracious and you've extended your word to us, your holy word. Thank you for Christ, your Son, who is our Savior. Also this morning, Lord, we ask that you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us the comforter to care for us, to empower us, to understand your word, that we might approach it and understand it in wisdom. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Amen. We don't know with certainty who the author of this epistle is. It is most likely John, as we see in our books, it's referred to the first epistle by John. But we don't see his name in the text. The book does not carry his name as authorship. However, it's safer to go with tradition. It's always said that John, they attribute to John the authorship of this text. And there are several reasons why. Mostly as we look internally to the text, not so much an appeal to tradition. Because we look at the text, there are these, 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 uh, these circling themes or uh, these similar ideas that we see that are carried over from the Gospel of John that John wrote. And so these themes, are, uh, that, that parallel that he picks up and is extending from his gospel is that there is this transition for believers from darkness to light. We see this in the first chapter in the fifth verse. He says that the righteous, the anointed, they walk in the light. And this is sharply contrasted as we consider the wicked. The, unri the unrighteous, they don't walk in the light of Christ. They don't walk in the light of the knowledge of the Spirit. They remain in the darkness. Another theme that's carried over from the Gospel of John into this into this epistle is this transition for the believer from death to life. See, a believer has eternal life. 
the righteous and the anointed. That's who they are. Why? Because Christ, Christ is life. He is the way, the truth, the light, and life. The unrighteous, they don't have life. They don't have eternal life. They only have death. So they remain in darkness and remain in death. What is this death? It's the death of sin, depravity, separation from God. Another theme that carries over, we see there's a transition from the works of the devil, you know, who's a ruler of the, of the current air, to the works of love. Namely, what, what do works of love look like? Well, we see in this epistle, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, he defines what it is. He says, the teaching that was given to you from the beginning, and what is that teaching? That you love one another. This is the definition of Christian love, fellowship with the saints, unity with the saints. And why? Well, those who are faithful to Christ, they have that unity. They have that fellowship. And so there's a sharp contrast between the righteous who are anointed with the Spirit and demonstrate and they live and abide in that love and they execute those works of love. And this is contrasted sharply with the unrighteous. Who? What do they do? Well, they exist in a world that's filled with the works of the devil. They live in darkness, they have death, and that's their life. They, they can't love the church. They've been given the grace to, they've been given the faith to. Some contemporary authors will argue that you know, this epistle was written in the 2nd century. And let's stay away from that. We'll say that no, it was written by John, who was the author of the Gospel of John. This is an epistle he's writing. And that yes, no, he is familiar with this body he's writing to. Well, if you look at the text, there's a reason to believe this. He seems to know things about them, the state of their affairs, and the state of their spirit, that you won't really presume upon if you don't know someone. So in the second chapter, we see that he knows that they have an anointing, he knows they have an unction. He knows that they're filled with Christ. He knows that they have the Spirit. And in chapter 4, he, he knows something about their, their spiritual living, their life in the world. He tells them, you are of God. He says, little children, you know this endearing term, you are of God, little children. And he says, you have overcome the spirits. And how did they overcome the spirits? Well, they tested them. They tested the spirits of the age. They tested the, the, you know, people who are living in the works of the devil, people living in darkness. And so he knows, yes, They've responded appropriately to unbelief. He knows they're believers. Well, as we move into our text, in a certain sense, in this Lenten season, this is an appropriate text as we're considering this contrast between the life we used to live and the life that God has given us. He's given us light and life, eternal life, sanctification. And in the Lenten season, we're looking forward to, to Easter, you know, that wonderful work where the Lord loved us and came and died for us. Where the atonement was applied to us, because we're the saints. And so in our message, we're going to be contrasting you know, the, the unrighteous with the righteous. And there are some questions that come out of our text, out of our, our, our three verses we're considering this morning. And the, first we're going to, the first one we're going to come to is, we're going to ask, what does John mean in this epistle when he says it is the last time? He says, little children, it is the last time. And, ye, and as ye have heard that the Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know it is the last time. Well, there's this parallelism. He says, it's the last time. These antichrists have come. We were told they were going to come. It is the last time. Well, some will argue that this last time is it's referring to the end of the cosmos. You know, the end of the, the heavens and the earth as we know it. You know, judgment day. Everything's going to be obliterated. But it doesn't seem to be the case. If you look at Isaiah 65, the church was looking to the prophets of the Old Testament. And how did they interpret the last time? How did they interpret the last hour? Well, it's not the end of the cosmos, 
What it was, it was the end of the Old Covenant order. That is, it was the end of the sacrificial system of Israel. And then the early church did this. This is how they interpreted the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. They saw that with Christ coming and his resurrection, his ascension, and then with Pentecost with the Spirit coming, they were using texts from the minor prophets and from the prophets. And they, they used those texts to interpret what had just happened. And so they were like, oh, these, this is the last days. These were the last days. This is the end of this time. This era is coming to an end. And so as we see in Acts 2.17, Peter says this, and he's quoting from Joel, one of the minor prophets. He says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. He's quoting Joel, chapter 2.28. And as we consider our New Testament reading, Peter then goes on to tell them to repent, to be baptized, and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Spirit. As you receive the Spirit, we see that that age, the age of the Old Testament, of the, of the Old Covenant, the, the age of the covenant before the resurrection of Christ, is coming to an end. Jerusalem will go to the wayside. The, sac the sacrifices will go to the, the wayside. Why? Because the law will be fulfilled by Christ, the true law. And so Peter tells them, he exhorts them there at the end of this, and he says, save yourselves from this untoward, corrupt generation. That is, save yourself from the day of the Lord, the light of God's coming judgment. Why is there a light of coming judgment coming to Jerusalem? Well, because Jerusalem sacrificed Christ. Jerusalem was supposed to be a mother who cared for her child. But what did she do? She boiled that child in her own milk. And so judgment will come to Jerusalem. And we know that this will happen. We know that in 70 AD, Jerusalem was obliterated. You see, the Lord is pouring out his spirit, and there's some confusion. We wonder, how can, how can there be this, this, this old age that is ending, this new age that is starting? And so you know, the people living in this apostolic age, it's kind of confusing because there's this blending here. You know? Because for a time after Christ ascends, Jerusalem is still there. The priests are still going through you know, the rites of the of sacrifice. And so there's confusion. You know, what do you mean this, this time is ending? What do you mean I'm supposed to run away from this untoward generation, from this wicked generation, these people who don't believe in the triune Lord, that deny Christ? Well, the confusion is that the one age hasn't come to an end yet because Jerusalem wasn't destroyed. But the new age had truly begun because Christ had came and the Spirit had came. And so as we consider our life, how can we relate to this? How can we understand when two ages kind of overlap? Well, probably one that most of us are familiar with is engagement. So if you consider your life prior to engagement, and for those of you who aren't engaged, uh, you know what engagement is, so this illustration, you're going to get it. Uh, your life before engagement has a certain pattern to it, because the order of your life is, is different, right? It's just, it's just you. And then, but your life after engagement is totally different because you're, you're married. You become, one, you become one flesh with your spouse, right? You, you leave your family, you cleave to your spouse as, as, the, as the Lord, as the Lord commit, tells us to. And so, but there's a kind of this overlapping engagement where you're no longer the person you were, and you can no longer live under the order of that former age, but in no, in no sense are you in that, that next age yet fully, right? You don't have the access to all the rights and privileges of marriage yet. It doesn't happen until the ceremony, until the Lord declares you're one with that spouse. And so for many believers here in this apostolic age, after Christ has ascended, they live in this, this age where there's this tension, 
But it's this, 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 this tension that's full, full of joy and faith, looking forward to something wonderful. Also, as we consider from our text, what, is, and what does John mean they went out from us? He says that they went out from us. They were not all of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out from us, and it might be made manifest that they were not of us. As we consider that text, there's a parallelism there. There's a, there's a uh, kind of a reflection of ideas. So he says, they went out from us, and they weren't of us. If they'd been of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. And so he's emphasizing that those who go out from the church, those who leave fellowship of the saints, it tells us something about them. It's an indicator of something about like, the state of their affairs, the state of their hearts. And so this is why he says, no, they weren't of us. This, this manifests, this clearly tells us they weren't of us. They denied Christ and they went out from us. And who are these antichrists? Well, who are these men that go out from them? We tell this in chapter 4, verse 3. That every spirit that confesseth, confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of antichrist. Well, even today we know that the spirit of antichrist is around. There are plenty of people we can go out in the workplace, or out in the, you know, the, civic, the civic, civic lawn of the world we live in, who would deny that Christ came in the flesh. They say that's nonsense. Well, they're wrong. Christ did come in the flesh. The Father sent him because he loves us. And Christ came and he humbled himself before us, and he was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And the Lord lifted him up and glorified him. And anyone who denies that Christ came in the flesh, they deny the triune Lord. Because the triune Lord is the Lord where Christ came. The Father sends the Son. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Also we know that Christ, when he was with them, he told them that false teachers would come. And so in a certain sense, you know, we see that Christ is caring for the disciples. He's caring for the saints who are, who are following him. And here there's a similar thing here. We see that the John, in the writing of this epistle, he's being like Christ. He's telling them something about the age they're going to live in. And he's warning them and caring for them. He's being Christ-like. And so Christ, he told those that were with him in Matthew 24 that false teachers would come in and that they would tell you that, no, 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 life, life is going to be normal. Life is just going to go on as normal. So, so, so you know, don't worry. You know, remain in Jerusalem. But Christ tells them, no, get to save yourself. From who? What? This untoward generation, this wicked generation who's denying Christ. And so that's why he says when judgment comes to Jerusalem, if you're, if you're a Christian, you need to flee the city. There's no looking back. Jerusalem is going to be obliterated. And you can't stand in, in, you can't stand in front of that, because that, in God's providence, this is what's happening. In God's holy justice and judgment, judgment must come to Jerusalem. And so, and so Jesus is speaking to the saints, and he's telling them something about the age they live in. And so our author is doing the same thing. He's telling them, you know, we knew, you know we, we've said that the Antichrist would come, and they have come. And look, look. These last days, they came, they were of us, but they went out. And he's, she's speaking to them to understand, you know, in one sense, this would be really confusing. You know, they, they supped with us at the table, they sat with us, we sang songs together, and now they're going out from us? You know, what's going on? Were they Christians? You know, did they have the Spirit or not? And then he makes you wonder, well, do I have the Spirit? Am I a Christian? So, you know, it, 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 and so he's speaking to these things, he's giving them comfort here. Well, why did they leave? We want to know why did they leave? Well, ultimately the reason people who have the spirit of the Antichrist, that is, people who deny that Christ came in the flesh, or people who deny sound doctrine, or deny the triune Lord, the reason they can't stay in the church is because this is an inhospitable environment 
for their sin. They can't remain here. They can't remain in the church. They can't remain in fellowship with true believers and remain in their sin. The Lord will not allow it. They will run away, essentially. And parents, this is what you should do with your household. You should structure your house in such a way that you create a home where sin is inhospitable. It cannot survive in there. So as you care for your children, as you nurture them in the Word, as you wash them in the Word, if you have an environment where sin is inhospitable, they will grow up in that. And when they leave your house and start their own home, they will do that there too. So we should all of us, we should all of us pray that the Lord would give us the grace and the strength to fight sin in our house first. Because there's a genera- generational application. As we show that model to our child, as we show our child, look, we model ourselves after the church. The church is an area that's inhospitable to sin. And our house is inhospitable to sin. Your child will desire that. Well, why will they desire that? One of the, re- one of the ways I've, it's been useful for me to understand how a child will desire that is through a quote from G.K. Chesterton. And it's somewhat of a paradigmatic quote. He's talking about as he came to the faith, and realize the truthfulness of you know, the Lord and, and the beauty of orthodoxy. He says he, re- he realized that while Christianity had a rule and an order, or you could say a law, the purpose of that law was to create room for good things to run wild. And that's our goal as parents in the house. The reason you want your house to be inhospitable to sin, the reason elders are commissioned to make sure that the church remains inhospitable to sin and that they execute biblical discipline, church discipline with members, is so good things can run wild in there. All of us need to be like children. What do children do when they're inside a gate, right? Yeah, it's a playground, right? Playground and the gates out there, they run around wild and good things overflow. They're happy as larks, right? Well, all, that's all of us. Why? Well, because the gate's there, the rule and order is there, and the wolves are outside being scattered. And what does Christ do? Well, inside that gate, inside that law, he's drawing the sheep to himself and caring for them, protecting them. So I would just urge parents to do that in the home. And children, I would urge you, as you see your parents do this, to look forward to the day when you become an adult and you can do this. That you can make a, a wonderful place for good things to run wild, for holiness to run wild. Also, as we consider that these saints went out, what do we know about security? What do we know about being called to the Lord? John 6:37, we're told this: "All the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out." See, the Father gives the church to Christ, and Christ will not cast her out. And this, this is so. This happened. We have security. These men who went out from us. Well, they weren't of us. Why weren't they of us? Because the Father did not give them to Christ. You see, Christ is faithful to us. We should be faithful to him. Our faithfulness to Christ. And so, and so why did these men go out? Well, they were, they were with us for a time, right? And so from all outward appearances, it seemed like they were believers, right? But the fact of the matter is they weren't. They looked like us, or they hung out with us. They may have even been baptized, but they didn't have faith. They didn't believe, as we heard in the, the confession from Heidelberg this morning. 
They feigned piety. What does this mean? It means they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. So what, is, what does hypocrisy look like? Well, this is what it looks like. These men tasted good food. They supped at the table. They prayed with us. But when they tasted that good food, they spit it out of their mouth and they called it poison. They tasted sound doctrine, that is, that Christ came in the flesh. They spat it out and said, no, Christ did not come in the flesh. So, when they tasted gall, when they tasted hypocrisy, when they tasted, tasted heresy, they said, mmm, that's honey. This is truly how foolish and wicked those are who the spirit of the Antichrist are. They did not meditate upon the law of the, of the, of the, of the word of, of the Lord, as we see the righteous man doing in Psalm 1, in their Old Testament reading. So truly, no. Don't be discouraged or don't wonder, you know. Don't, don't let them leaving make you wonder whether or not the Lord is faithful to you. No, the Lord is faithful to you. The Father has, has given you to Christ, and he will not cast you out. John 10, 28, And I gave to them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. Christ won't cast you out, and nobody can come in and steal you from him. The wolves will remain outside the gate. The Lord will scatter them, and he will bring the sheep to himself. As we consider this, there are two responses. We see that trials, in a sense, when this happens, it's a trial for the church. It's a tribulation for the church. But this is good for the church. You see that the, the church in the world is the Lord's threshing floor. And we see that he separates chaff from the wheat. We see that the believer, the righteous man, is like the tree. It's firmly planted by water. Yet the wicked are like the chaff, which are hit, and the wind just blows them away. We need to praise God for this. Why? Because when this happens, he's protecting his church. He's keeping her holy and safe. He has created that room for good things to run wild. But on the other hand, we are sad. We are sad when someone goes out from us. Or whenever the elders have to implement, you know, uh, biblical discipline and say someone is excommunicated. Well, if they ever repent of their sin, they can return. And we would gladly bring them back. And all of us are ordered by Scripture to forgive them. And it would be great, right? They're back. They're back. And that's what we want. But when they go out, we truly are sad. Why? Because we want the salvation of all men. We want what our Lord desires. And so a response to this is praise and prayer. We thank the Lord that he protects his church. We continue to pray for those who go out because we want them to repent. We want them to return to the Lord. Finally, what does John mean when he says that they have an unction? He says, you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Well, this unction, what is it? It is an, under, it is an understanding. It is the Spirit being poured out on them. That is who the Holy One is. And so they know all things. It doesn't mean they know all things in the world. It doesn't mean now they have infinite knowledge. They're omnipotent and things like that. It means, they have, it means they know all things necessary for salvation, for perseverance, and for sanctification. And so we see in John, the first epistle to John, chapter 2, verse 27, he says, The anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. You see, they don't need any new knowledge. If you have the Spirit 
the Lord has, you know, if you are Christ, if the Father gives you the Christ and the Spirit has been poured out on you, you don't need any new knowledge. All that you need for salvation, the Lord has done. Why? Well, Christ has accomplished and applied the atonement to you. He has saved you, secured you, and he's given you his word, which is sufficient for everything. So there's no need for us to go out with this kind of a wanderlust attitude and, and seek for new knowledge. And we see this as kind of common. This is probably the reason why some people go out from us. It isn't enough to have sound doctrine. Then, lust builds up in them, lust for knowledge, lust for new ideas, and they go out seeking for that, and eventually they come to a point where they deny that Christ came in the flesh. So this, this, this anointing they have, it's knowledge from God. He's encouraging them to persevere in that. And we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding. That we know we may know him that is true. That we are in him that is true. Even his Son, Christ Jesus. That is true God of eternal life. You see, the Son has come. He has given us understanding. And that understanding is this. We know that Christ is the truth. And because of this, we know. We know the true God. And we have eternal life. The Antichrist do not have this. They do not have eternal life. They were not given the anointing. They were not given the spirit. That is why they denied that Christ came in the flesh. That is why they went out from us. So as we consider the anointing John speaks about that is given to believers, we're going to compare that quickly to the anointing that Christ had in John 12. There's a woman who comes to Christ with an expensive bottle of perfume. She breaks it open and she anoints him. And everyone there is looking at her sideways. Why would you, you know, very, very expensive bottle of perfume, why would you use that to anoint him? Well, Christ gives the interpretation. He says the reason she did it was to prepare him for his death and his burial. And he knows also for his resurrection. And so Christ, there's this anointing given to him, and it's a type and a figure of the anointing that we are given. The Lord has given us the Spirit. And in the same manner that the Lord here, he is being anointed and prepared for his death and burial and resurrection, the Spirit equips us and prepares us for death and resurrection. All of us will die eventually. And it might bring fear to us, especially as we go on in age. We don't need to. You need to just rest in the Lord's providence and care. Rest in the Spirit, the anointing, the understanding the Lord has given you. And know that he's anointed you, that you have all the knowledge necessary to face death that the Lord has equipped you and prepared you for resurrection, and that he will. Why? Well, the Lord is true to his word. He will raise you from the dead. Also, the Lord has anointed you with the unity of the saints, that is, with fellowship with the saints. And we see that same, that same term there used in Psalm 133 where it says, you know, fellowship with the saints, you know, unity with the brethren. It's like an anointing. You're anointed with that. And that, too, is one of those things that helps prepare you and equip you to live in the world today to look forward to the future hope of resurrection. So quickly, with points of application, as we consider the contrast between the faithful, the righteous, those who believe and know that Christ is, is the Lord, and that of the unrighteous. Know that you, the anointed, you, the anointed who are believers, have eternal life. You know that the Son of God has come. You know that he has given you an understanding. And you know that what you know is true. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. 
Therefore, you know the true God and you have eternal life. Cling to this. Know this. Don't let anyone take that away from you. The Lord has given you that. So rest in his care. Take him at his word. Rest in God's providence and care. And take him at his word. God has given you life, life, and love. So examine yourself today. Reflect now. Especially children. All of us let's do this right now. Ask yourself, am I changing from darkness to light? Am I changing from darkness to light? You know, am, I, am I being sanctified, essentially? Do we see this? Do, does my life show this, right? Ask yourself, am I changing from death to life? Am I putting off the old man and putting on the new man? That is, Christ-likeness. Also, ask yourself, as you go throughout the habits of daily life, am I putting off the works of the devil and putting on the works of Christ, the works of the kingdom? That is, you know, unity, fellowship, love for the church, things like that. And what, what does this mean? Well, it means... In your personal life, things will change, right? As we become more and more sanctified, we're going to put off backbiting. We're going to put off a heart of dispute. We're going to put off uh, selfishness. We're going to look more towards the glory of God and caring for men. Also, the Lord has given you the anointed faith. Christ has anointed you. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's empowered you to walk as he did. So imitate Christ. The aim of our faith is that, to be conformed to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ has given you faith. He has given you the living root of faith, which enables you to carry the testimony of adoption in your hearts. You have faith. However, the wicked, look at them, they are rootless. That's why the Antichrist denied Christ came in the flesh and went out from us. But you have this. You will persevere because you have faith. It's a root, like the tree that's planted deeply by the water. The wind comes and that tree stands. That is the righteous man. You need to identify yourself as that man. And seek to be that. And ultimately, the Lord has given you the anointed his word, his sufficient word. So as you live in the world today, one of the wonderful ways to, to use the word for living is listen to God's voice in scripture. Because knowledge of scripture is knowledge of Christ. That's the reason we have an Old and New Testament. And that's why they're both sufficient for teaching so listen to God's voice. And as you're out in the marketplace, or at work, in the playground, grocery store, you're watching a movie or reading a book, as you hear other voices, compare that voice to the voice of Christ you hear in Scripture. And so ask yourself, does the voice I'm hearing now, does it echo the voice of Christ in the Scriptures? And this will, this will be of great value to you. You know, because sometimes... We see things that look really, really close to righteousness or holiness, right? And, well, so for example, these men were in the church at that time, in the pew, and from outward appearances they looked the same, but we know they weren't. They went, ultimately they went out from us. We know that they feigned piety and they were hypocrites. And so there's this, you know, you have, to, you have to really have the spirit here to discern these things. So, if you, like, you know, for instance, you read a book, and sometimes... As the, as, the, as the devil tries to attack the church, something will look really, really close to the truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> look really, really close. And so that's why you have all these offshoot cults that, from Christianity, right? You know, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, things like that. All other, all other kinds of weird things, right? Because sin will make all kinds of weird, messy things. And we need to know, be able to distinguish those, right? For certain. So, for instance, let's like, say you're reading a book. 
And in this book, it talks about a man and a wife and their marriage. And in, 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 the, in the book, the guy's like, oh, conversation with a coworker or something. He's like, well, I love my wife, so, you know, such and such, some type of sin between the two of them. And I don't want to bring it up because it might hurt it, right? Well, that's nonsense. Because scripture clear, clearly tells us there's an, if, if, you know, if there's two believers and there's an offense against one, you, you, you know, if the offense of the nature that you cannot forgive them and let it go, then you have to go to them. Because why? They might keep doing it and keep sinning against you over and over and over again. So now you have, and so if you can, you know, that's what Christ says in Scripture. And we read this book from, you know, some bookshelf in the store. I'm like, oh, yeah, look at that. That doesn't echo the voice of Christ. And so just do this in, in, in normal life. And this is one of the ways you can, as a, as a parent, make your home inhospitable to sin. You just apply Scripture. And it starts with real basic stuff like that. And we need to do this because, as we saw, he, he, he encouraged them. Why? They tested spirits, right? They tested teachings. The church did that then, and we need to continue to do that. And so we should praise the Lord that he's given us his word. And ultimately he's given us his word because through this, wolves are scattered and sheep are gathered. When we do this, we go out to the nations, we baptize them, we make them disciples. As we see in Matthew 28. God has given us this word that we all might be like Christ and have faithfulness to Christ. So our response, God is faithful to us. Let's be faithful to him. Please close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon that was recently preached at Christ Church of Lemison County. If you would like further information about anything in this message, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.